so glad that you're here this morning at church. Would you open your Bible with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, the title of today's message is Be Strong in the Lord. Be Strong in the Lord. As you're opening your Bible to Ephesians 6, I want to tell you a story that comes from Acts chapter 19. The Apostle Paul Uh, who wrote the book of Ephesians, stops in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, and he meets some of the believers for the very first time. And um, he spends about three months in the synagogue in Ephesus preaching about the kingdom of God and ended up staying there for a total of about two years and so that all who were there heard the word of God. So we pick up the story in Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 11. It says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So what's happening here in this section of Acts chapter 19 is that Paul is on his final missionary journey, and he lands in Ephesus, and God starts doing some absolutely supernatural things through Paul, in Paul, around Paul. People are being healed just by touching a Kleenex or an apron that Paul had touched at some point in the past. Evil spirits are coming out of people. People are hearing and responding to the word of God in absolutely supernatural ways. But then there are some who were making their living by supposedly driving demons out of people and and they saw all the success that Paul was having and so they started trying to do everything that Paul was doing. They were trying to drive demons out of people in the name of Paul's Jesus and they themselves did not know Jesus. They were just hoping that Paul's Jesus would rub off a little bit on them. And as you can tell from the story, this went horrifically bad for them. And these people were overpowered by the evil spirits and they were forced out of that place. Now, if you can just imagine for a minute being in that place and watching all of that unfold on that day, that would have been absolutely awful. Unlike anything that you had ever seen before. But despite the terror of that moment, notice what happens immediately next in Acts chapter 19. We pick up the story again in verse 17 and it says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So right after all of that happened, word spreads throughout the land and even uh, more people begin turning to the Lord. And not only that, there's this massive revival that breaks out. People are repenting of past sins. They're confessing current sins. And then a bunch of people brought a bunch of the stuff that represented their old way of life. They throw it into this really big pile and they light it on fire. It's even estimated that everything that was thrown into the fire that day to our modern currency would have been worth about six to eight million dollars. So they throw all of that stuff that represents their old way of life into this pile. It literally goes up in flames. 
And then the best part, though, is how Luke concludes this in verse 20. Listen again to what he says. He says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And that's the point of the story. The point of the story is that the gospel is strong to save anyone from anything. Now, keep in mind that all of that happened in Ephesus. It happens among these people to whom Paul is writing this letter that we know as Ephesians. Keep in mind, as we've said before in our series as well, that Ephesus was often thought through the ancient world as one of the hubs of demonic activity and spiritual warfare. And so if you were a Christian living in Ephesus at this particular time, you would not have needed a lot of convincing that spiritual warfare was a very real possibility and it was a very powerful possibility. Unlike much of what we tend to think today in our modern Western world, we, need to see, we seem to need a little bit more convincing in our world today. Our attitude towards spiritual warfare is much more along the lines of what C.S. Lewis described in his classic book, The Screwtape Letters. Lewis invites us into this fictional interaction between a senior demon named Screwtape and his young protege and nephew named Wormwood, and they're strategizing about how to deceive and capture the attention of Wormwood's first assignment, to take someone away from God and toward the evil one. And in the preface of that book, Lewis writes this. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both, er by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, in some ways... This very much describes our approach to these things as well. When we think about spiritual warfare, when we think about these supernatural battles that are taking place. In other words, when it comes to our understanding of the supernatural realm, we typically, not always, but we typically fall into one of two categories. We either believe that it does not exist, or we believe that it does exist and we are completely consumed by an unhealthy interest in it. And if you step back from that conversation long enough, you can begin to realize how easy it could be to fall into either one of those two camps. On the one hand, let's be honest, uh, there is some pretty weird stuff about there, about, out there about spiritual warfare and what it is and what we're supposed to do in it, much of which has little to no grounding in the Bible itself. So on the one hand, it might be really easy for us to get carried away and caught up in an unhealthy interest in this. On the other hand, we live in a culture that lives and breathes by the statement, I'll believe it when I see it. And so in our modernistic, rationalistic, humanistic mindset, if we can't taste it, touch it, feel it, smell it, or see it, then it must not be true which really then just presents another challenge of equal difficulty. We look around and what we do see is an abundance of prosperity. We've created lifestyles of ease and simplicity and whenever anything that's labeled a battle or warfare comes along our way, we do everything that we can to try and push it away. We don't want that, so we push back and push back and push back until it's not there anymore and it's not impacting us anymore. We crave ease and simplicity and comfort, and in the midst of that, it can be really easy for us to forget the reality that not only is there a battle that rages around us, but there is actually a battle that is raging within us. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is super clear. There is a supernatural battle that is going on all around us. 
There are things going on right now in the supernatural spiritual realm that we do not see. There are things going on in the supernatural realm right now that we do not know. There are things going on in the supernatural realm around us right now that if we were to see them, we could not even begin to fathom how we might respond to them. All through the Bible, the reality is so clear of this supernatural spiritual battle that is all around us. It starts at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, Eve is tempted by Satan in the Garden of Eden. She eats fruit from the tree. Adam follows and does the same, and all of humanity is plunged into sin. Job chapters 1 and 2, Satan gets permission from God to bring pain and suffering to Job with the hope that Job will curse God's name. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit of God to be tempted by the devil himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul reminds us that even right now, at this moment, Satan, whom he calls the God of this world in that chapter, he says, Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ. Not to mention most of the book of Revelation in which this end times cosmic battle unfolds between good and evil that culminates not only in the eventual defeat of Satan, but in the ultimate victory of God. So make no mistake, there is an ongoing supernatural spiritual battle going on all around us and as Christians, we are engaged in that battle. So the question for us becomes then, how do we respond? How do we respond to this battle that's going on around us? That's where Ephesians chapter 6 comes in for us this morning. So follow along in your copy of God's word as I begin reading Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10 and down to verse 13. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The way that we engage in the battle is to be strong in the Lord. The way that we engage in the battle is to be strong in the Lord. Here's what I'd like to do with this passage. I'd like to start by making three observations about the battle, followed by four applications for the battle. Okay, so three observations about this battle. You could put that under the heading, what we need to know. And then four applications for the battle. You can put that under the heading, what we need to do. So let's start with what we need to know. Three observations. Here's the first. Number one, the battle is supernatural. The battle is supernatural. This is a real battle against a real enemy. In fact, look at what Paul says. Look at how he describes the battle in these few verses in Ephesians 6. He says, the only way for us to fight and the only way for us to endure in this fight is by wearing an armor that only God himself can give. And the reason that we need an armor that only God can give is because we're fighting an enemy that only God can defeat. Verse 11, he says, we put on the armor to stand against the schemes That word literally means the methods, the strategies of the devil. Notice verse 12. He says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Notice he says we 
do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So there's a couple of really important things I want you to see just in that one statement alone. The first is that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our greatest battles, our greatest problems are not with other people. Our greatest conflict is not with people who disagree with us. It's not with people who think differently than us. It's not with people who are trying to frustrate the things that we do because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our greatest challenge, our greatest problem, our greatest battle is against the evil forces in the heavenly places who are doing anything and everything to try and frustrate the plan and the purposes of God within our life. So our problems are not with the people around us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Second thing I want you to notice in that statement is that he says we. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Remember, Paul's not only writing this to individual Christians to teach them how to live the Christian life. He's writing to the church. He's writing to a group of believers and he's saying to them that we, collectively, we fight this battle together. So we stand up together We armor up together, and we stand firm together. Now, I don't know if if you've seen this in your life, but I found it to be true in my life, and I'm pretty sure you've probably found it to be true in your life as well, that we tend to lose ground in the battle when we try to fight the battle alone. True? Right? You agree with that? We tend to lose ground in the battle when we try to fight the battle alone. Let me prove it to you. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and life is literally perfect. Like they have everything they could want, they have everything that they need because they have everything that they need and want in God. And so life is perfect for them at this point until Satan slithers into the garden and he tempts Eve to eat from a tree from which God said that they should not eat. Now think about this, at that particular point in human history, Adam and Eve are not doing great things to advance the kingdom of God. They're just not. Like, like they're not planning world-changing mission trips at this point. They're not witnessing to their neighbors because they don't have any. Like, they're just not, they're not doing these great things to try and advance the mission of God, right? In fact, what they're doing is they're just living out the simplicity of the life that God has just given to them. And it's into that simplicity that Satan now comes and he strikes the first blow in this battle. But then notice what happens once the battle begins. Satan comes up to Eve, chimes into her, and says to her, Did God really say that? Like, did God actually say that? Because God knows, Eve, that if you eat fruit from that tree, God knows that you'll become like God and that you'll know the difference then between good and evil. What's curious about this whole exchange is that at no point in this entire interaction does Eve call a timeout and go to Adam and say to him, hey Adam, listen, something really strange happened to me when I was working in the garden today. This talking snake came up to me and he starts telling me all these things about what God said and and does that sound right to you? Because it really doesn't sound right to me. Like, does that sound like what God told you all that time ago and then what you told me? Because that just doesn't sound right. Like, think about this. We tend to lose ground in the battle when we try to fight the battle alone. Eve never went to Adam and and tried to understand what's God saying to us? What's What's God actually said in the midst of this? And one of our greatest problems is that when we try to fight the battle alone, we tend to forget that we are not the only ones fighting the battle. Paul says here that we, together, collectively, we wrestle against these forces 
So understand, part of what he's saying is that putting on the armor of God is an individual responsibility. Yes and amen. All of us, if you are saved in Jesus Christ, if you have turned away from your sin, repented of your sin, believed in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you are a child of God. And in Jesus Christ, we all put on the armor of God. So we put on the armor of God as an individual responsibility, but it is first a collective necessity. We are in this together. We need to walk with each other. We need to pray with each other. We need to worship with each other because this battle is supernatural. And because this enemy is strong. That's observation number two. This enemy is strong. So understand that our enemy is not one to be trifled with. He is a real enemy who is supernaturally strong. And yet one of his greatest tactics is to make us believe otherwise. One more time, C.S. Lewis captured this so well. Screwtape says to Wormwood, I don't think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Loved ones, understand that we cannot underestimate the power of the enemy. Especially in light of what Paul says in verse 12. Verse 12 describes this organization of evil supernatural forces that strive to take us away from the plans and the purposes of God for our life. And and really, we have no way of knowing exactly what the differences are in these rankings that Paul describes because the Bible doesn't seem to speak to that. But Paul's purpose here, understand, his purpose here is not to explain how the demonic realm structures their authority. His purpose here is to help us see and understand how powerful and sophisticated we should expect their attacks to be. For example, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You ever watch those nature shows? Show the prowling lions? It's kind of scary, right? You're watching those, and, and there's the lion. He's, he's just kind of prowling around, just walking around. He's just kind of circling his unsuspecting prey. He's just lingering and watching and waiting until that one perfect moment where all of a sudden he just pounces with speed and power that nobody sees coming. And Peter says that's the way that the devil works. He's looking for someone to devour just like that. That literally means he's looking for someone to completely swallow up. That's why Peter says be sober-minded, be watchful, because the reality is if you continue to live in the shadow of your unrepentant sin, if you continue to live in the shadow of your unconfessed sin, that's when your spiritual sensitivities are down. When you keep, keep uh, hanging on to the things that are drawing you farther away from Jesus instead of bringing you closer to him, that's when your spiritual radar is not working the way that it's supposed to work and that's when the enemy's looking to attack. So Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Not only that, but when you look at Ephesians 6 verse 13, 
we need to see that there is an urgency here that cannot go unnoticed. We are living, Paul says in verse 13, in the evil day. And the enemy would love nothing more than for us to downplay how real this battle is. He would love nothing more than for us to not take him seriously and to think of him as little more than a cartoon character in red tights with a pitchfork to be laughed at or to be mocked. Listen, friends, his singular mission is to destroy our lives and to destroy our testimony for God. That's the picture that the Bible repeatedly paints of him. Job chapter 1, verse 6, Satan's name means the accuser or the adversary. Matthew 13, 19 says that Satan is the evil one who snatches away the word of God that has been planted in people's hearts. Luke eleven fifteen says that Satan is the prince of demons. Luke twenty two thirty one says that Satan will do anything he can to cause God's people to fall. John sixteen eleven says that Satan is the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, again, says that Satan is the God of this world who is working to blind the minds of unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, says that Satan sends messengers to harass God's people. Ephesians 2, verse 2, says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 18, says that Satan works to hinder the plans of God's people. Revelation 9, verse 11, says that Satan's name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and his name in Greek is Apollyon, which translated means destruction and destroyer. This is the enemy who is full of schemes and evil plans. And yet what makes this battle so profound is that for all that the Bible says about who Satan is, the Bible also says that there is still coming a day when Jesus will fully and finally extinguish the power of Satan forever. So Revelation 20, verse 10 says, And the devil who had deceived them, that is, deceived the nations, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. There is coming a day when Jesus will extinguish the power of Satan for good, which tells us that Jesus is stronger than our enemy. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the good news. So listen carefully, loved ones. This battle may be supernatural, and this enemy may be strong, but the good news here is that our God is God overall. Our God is over everything, and that's observation number three. God is great overall. And so you can see this right from the beginning of this passage we read in Ephesians 6, verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So even before Paul begins to unpack the reality of this supernatural battle against this strong enemy, he reminds us of our identity as God's people. Our identity is in the Lord. Our identity is no longer in the world. Your identity is not in who you are or what you can do or what you do. Your identity as a follower of Jesus is in Jesus himself. And so he tells us here where our identity is and where our strength comes from. He says we are strong in the Lord. Verse 11, he says, it's putting on the armor of God that strengthens you to stand against the devil's schemes. Which means then that the armor of God is stronger, it is more powerful than anything that the enemy can throw at it. Verses 12 and 13, he says, it's taking up the armor of God that strengthens you to withstand an organized attack from an evil enemy. 
So listen, loved ones, our greatest hope is that for as supernatural as these battles are and for as strong as this enemy is, this enemy bows to the will of our God and this battle is under the control of our God. His strength is strong enough to overcome it and the strength he provides is enough to stand firm in it. That's why Paul says at the very beginning, be strong in the Lord. So, here's the million-dollar question. How do you be strong in the Lord? What does that mean? I mean, if this battle is supernatural and this enemy is strong and our God is great overall, then how do you stand in the strength that God provides? Well, that brings us now to four applications. Four applications for this battle. So let's begin with this. Number one, you can jot this down. To be strong in the Lord, I must depend on his strength. To be strong in the Lord, I must depend on his strength. And and you're like, wow, that is so profound. Thanks so much. Like, to be strong in the Lord, I need to depend on his strength. Yeah. And what makes it so profound is that that's what the Bible says. To be strong in the Lord, I must depend on his strength. So you want some good news this morning? Who wants some good news this morning? Right? We want some good news, right? Okay. Here's the good news. You have nothing to bring to this battle. And you're like, thanks for that good news. That's great. Like, glad you came to church this morning, right? Okay, you have nothing to bring to this battle. I have nothing to bring to this battle. Collectively, we could put all of our resources together and we would have nothing to bring to this battle. The good news is that Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything for us. Our strength is in the one who has defeated sin. Our strength is in the one who has defeated our enemy. Our strength is in the one who rules and reigns for all of eternity. So he says, verse 10, he begins by saying, finally. So when he says finally, you need to understand that he's not just wrapping up this letter. He is doing that. But when he says finally, he's kind of like saying, all right, from now on, okay? Or or from this point forward. So try and and put yourself in this crowd that, that Paul's writing this letter to originally for the very first time. You're sitting there in Ephesus, probably in this house church with a small group of people, and you've been anticipating this letter for so long. It finally comes. It's there. You've been sitting on the edge of your seat the whole time, just listening as this letter is being read, and now he gets to the very end of the letter, and he says, finally. And basically what he's saying here is, I want you to take all of the things that were part of your old life, all the things that characterized who you were before you came to know Jesus, and I want you to leave those things behind. Put those things in the rearview mirror, because that's not who you are anymore. He's saying, from this point forward, from now on, the way that you live the Christian life is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The idea here behind this command is that this empowering is something that we receive from the Lord. In other words, it's like this is a life that is like steeped in Christ. Think of like a, a tea bag in hot water that's, that steeps in hot water. The longer you leave the tea bag in the hot water, the stronger the flavor of the water becomes, right? Similarly, the more that you and I abide in Jesus, the more that his power steeps through every single part of our life. Like, just think about this. This is the strength of Jesus in you. This is the life of Jesus being lived in you and through you as you live the Christian life. Like, think, this is the might of Jesus that proclaims the gospel with authority. 
This is the might that healed the sick and made the lame to walk and caused the blind to see. This is the might that fed thousands of people with small amounts of food twice. This is the might that walked on water and calmed the raging sea and turned water into wine. This is the might that raised the dead at the sound of his voice. This is the might that raises him from the dead for victory over sin and death forever. Ever. This is the might. This is the power of Jesus. And as a child of God who has repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you have the power of Jesus that is living in you. And you have that power right now. For everything that you go through, for every battle that you fight, you have the power of Jesus. So this right now just begs us right here in this room right now to ask the question of ourselves and to examine our own hearts and see where we are looking for our strength to live the Christian life. Like where are you looking in your life for strength to live the life that God has called you to live? Think about it. When, what about when you're tempted to sin? Where do you look for strength? Where do you look for strength to overcome the temptation? You look to your, to your own strength, you look to your own willpower, like, like you just got to pull up your bootstraps and put your head down and, and just kind of white knuckle it through it. Like I just got to get through this and I can do this by myself. And is that where you look for your strength? What about when part of your future is up in the air and you don't know what to do? Like what do you do then? Where do you look for your strength then? You depend on your own reputation to kind of get you through that season of your life and, and depend on your own uh, work and everything that you've done and your name and your power and your ability and your creativity and your ingenuity and, and it just kind of gets you through it all? What about when you're suffering? Like, think about this. Where do you get your strength when you could be going through an entire season of your life where it feels like you have no physical strength at all? Where do you get your strength in the midst of the battle? And the overwhelmingly clear call of this passage is to look to Jesus. That's what Paul's been preaching to us all along through this letter to the Ephesians. He's saying, don't forget that you are in Christ. Don't forget that you have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. That's like week number one that we looked at that. Ephesians 1 verse 3. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ, including the strength that you need to live the Christian life. I mean, that's what Paul was praying for us all the way back in chapter 1, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God within our life. And so now he's coming to this point at the very end, and he's saying, okay, here's your chance now. Put that power to work. This power is yours. Use it. It's been said before that uh, the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. When we realize that, we begin to see that for us to be strong in the Lord, we must depend on his strength. Our strength isn't going to cut it. So how do you do that? How do you depend on the strength of the Lord? Well, that leads us now to application number two. To be strong in the Lord... I must put on his armor. I must put on his armor. This is where the strength comes from. Notice he says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look more specifically at the pieces of the armor. But for now, notice that he says here that we need the entire armor. He says put on the whole armor of God. That to leave out one part of the armor will ultimately leave you vulnerable. So an ancient soldier uh, would not have gone into battle with only three quarters of his armor on. Like, how crazy would that have been, right? Like, no soldier is going to walk up to the battle line and think to himself, okay, got a belt, got a sword, got a helmet, but I have no breastplate, but I'm good. 
Like, nobody's going to do that, right? That would be crazy. It doesn't make any sense. And in the same way, as Christians, we have been given an armor by God, and God says, put on the whole armor, because you need the whole armor, because you're going into a battle where you're going to need every piece of that armor. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, The Christian Soldier, writes this. He says, if you are to be a soldier in this army, if you are to fight victoriously in this crusade, you have to put on the entire equipment given to you. That is a rule in any army. And that is infinitely more true in this spiritual realm and warfare with which we are concerned. Because your understanding is inadequate. It is God alone who knows your enemy. And he knows exactly the provision that is essential to you if you are to continue standing. Every single part and portion of this armor is absolutely essential. And the first thing that you have to know is that you are in no position to pick and choose. So don't miss this. This armor is a gift of God's love to us. Because God is giving us the tools that we need to fight an enemy that we don't understand. That's why it's so important for us to see this command to put on the armor. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. The idea here is permanence. Okay, it's permanence. In other words, it's not so much that you keep putting the armor on over and over and over and over again. It's that you put the armor on and you keep the armor on because that's who you are. It's a little bit like uh, seeing commanders and generals in the army on TV, right? And, and anytime you see them on TV, they're always wearing their full uniform, right? And even if they're retired, they've still got their entire uniform on because it's part of who they are. And in an infinitely more profound way, that's the way it is for Christians as well. These pieces of the armor represent the things that we are to pursue in the Christian life. And so we put the whole armor on and we keep the whole armor on. Why? Because the battle never stops. Like, how many know that to be true? The battle just never stops. And so we put the armor on and we keep the armor on. Now, pull on that thread a little bit. How crazy would it be to see one of those commanders or generals on TV and, and they're wearing their, their white shirt and their tie and they've got their medals on their chest that represent their service to their country and, and they're looking really sharp. But then the camera pans out a little bit and you see that they're wearing like Hawaiian flower shorts with it or something, right? And it just looks totally crazy, right? Like, what's going on? That's not right. They're only wearing part of the uniform. What's wrong with that picture? And in a similar sense, that's the way it is for us as believers as well. We have been given the whole armor of God. The Bible says put on the whole armor of God. Because the battle never stops. Which is why application point number three becomes so important now. Notice this, to be strong in the Lord, I must realize my responsibility. So it's not enough just for us to wear the armor and then think we're good. We need to start using it. I want you to see two words in verses 11 and 12 that uh, describe how we need to respond. First of all, notice the second part of verse 11. Paul says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The picture here is that even while we are under attack from the enemy, that we are firmly grounded in the one place that we know is solid, safe, and trustworthy. And the only place that truly meets that criteria for us is the gospel. That's why he says, put on the armor of God. Because the armor of God describes everything that the gospel has accomplished in your life. So when the battle's raging around you, 
and when the battle is raging in you, stand in the one place that you know to be absolutely solid ground. Stand on the truth of the gospel and what Jesus has done for you, that he's taken you from having no identity before you were saved, and he's given you a new identity in Jesus Christ as a new creation in him. You stand on the truth of what you know to be absolutely true, unshakable ground. You stand on the firm, solid, sure promises of God toward you because he loves you. So he says, put on the armor of God. Stand on everything that you know is true about you because of what Christ has done for you. The second word I want you to notice is in verse 12. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So on the one hand, he says that we're to stand, but on the other hand, he says we are to wrestle. Now, I don't know what picture comes to your mind when you think about wrestling. Maybe WWF, like WrestleMania, steel cage match. Like maybe you think dads and sons just kind of play wrestling with one another, but, but when you think about wrestling, wrestling is like close and intense conflict, right? It's right up close and personal, and, and it's all about trickery and deception, And then, once you have the trickery and deception, like you just pounce on your opponent at just the right time and you totally overtake them. See, the thing is, this crowd in Ephesus that Paul is writing to, they would have known exactly what Paul was talking about when he starts talking about wrestling. Because in a real-life wrestling match in ancient Rome, they would have known for sure that it meant life for the winner, probably, and certain death for the loser. Like, when, when guys got together in ancient Rome and started to wrestle, they didn't just wrestle for the fun of it. They didn't do it just for kicks. Like they were thrown into a pit by an evil emperor as a means of entertainment. And the part of the entertainment was that the loser of the wrestling match would certainly die and the winner of the wrestling match would probably live. That was part of the entertainment for them. And so when Paul brings up this image of wrestling, they know what's going on. They know for sure that there is a lot at stake here. Listen, loved ones, we need to realize that the Christian life is a wrestling match. We need to realize that the Christian life is not all about cupcakes and lollipops. It's not about a walk through the proverbial garden, so to speak, and you're just enjoying the breeze, and it's all great, and and that's all fine. Like anyone who thinks that the Christian life is supposed to be easy has a tragic and unfortunate misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. Because when you repent of your sins and follow Jesus by virtue of your new nature in him, you are instantly entering a battlefield. Just think about it. It's a wrestling match. This is not supposed to be easy. Just consider reading your Bible every day in a way that's more than just for a check mark. Like reading your Bible and and digging in and praying as you read, praying to God, God, please teach me from your word. God, please show me what you're saying to me right here. God, please help me understand this so that this changes me now from the inside out. Like reading your Bible like that every day in a meaningful way is not supposed to be easy. Like let's take this opportunity right now and just line up our expectations with the reality of God's word, okay? Let's just get this right. Reading your Bible like that's not supposed to be easy. Praying in faith for God to move in the midst of your life and your circumstances is not supposed to be easy. 
Confessing your sin, repenting of your sin before God, that is not supposed to be easy. Sometimes even marriage, parenting, family, all of this stuff, we look around us in a world that is so broken, sometimes that is really, really hard. It's not supposed to be easy. Sometimes sacrificially giving away the resources that God has blessed us with in a generous way to help other people and bless them, trusting in Jesus for more every single day of our life, this is not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be easy to lay down your life to follow the one who was crucified because of who he said he is. See, when you become a Christian, your first step and every step thereafter is onto a battlefield. That's the nature of the Christian life. This is the wrestling match into which we have entered. And yet, in the midst of all of that, The really good news is that Jesus, our loving Savior, has promised that one day he will rescue us forever from this wrestling match that makes us so weary right now. It's coming a day when he's just going to lift the weight off of us. And we will praise his name forever. So understand in the midst of all of this, as you put on the armor of God, as you fight these battles day in, day out, battles you don't understand, battles you can't explain, you put on this gift of the armor that God has given to you, that he has blessed you with as a gift of his love to you and realize your responsibility in this, that you stand and you wrestle, which leads us then to application number four. To be strong in the Lord, I must see it as his battle to win. I must see it as his battle to win. We stand, we wrestle, but only with the strength that God provides because these are God's battles to win. That's why he says, verse 13, we take up the whole armor of God. So notice this, just a a few verses before, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Remember, that's the idea of permanence. We put on the armor and we keep on the armor. But now he says, take up the armor. In other words, start using the armor that you have. So you don't just put it on and you keep it on. Now he says, take it up, start using it. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. As H.B. Charles has said, the evil day is any day that the enemy attacks, which means that the evil day is every day. And in that, we do all that we can to withstand his attacks and stand firm in the truth of the gospel. See, the really good news in all of this is that we do not withstand in the evil day because we are strong. How many know that to be true? We don't, we don't stand because we're strong. We withstand in the evil day because Jesus withstood the greatest evil of all on the greatest evil day of all. He took all of our evil upon himself. He took all of our sin upon himself so that by repenting of our evil and believing in him, we are made right with God and all of the strength of Jesus then becomes our strength as well. That's the strength that we have to live the Christian life. So you need to understand that the power of the gospel that has saved you is the same power that helps you stand firm against temptation. It's the same power that helps you stand firm in suffering. It's the same power that helps you stand firm in the midst of worry and fear and anxiety and depression. It's the same power that helps you stand firm with your eyes completely and totally fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, so that he gives you his strength for whatever circumstance you're in, for whatever battle you happen to be fighting. We withstand because Jesus stood firm. 
And his victory becomes our victory through faith in him. That's good news. One of my favorite Old Testament stories is found in 2 Chronicles 20. King Jehoshaphat is being attacked by enemy nations that have banded together against him. And without any warning, Jehoshaphat finds himself in a battle that he can't explain and he doesn't understand, much like the spiritual battles that we often face, right? We can't explain them. We don't understand them. And so Jehoshaphat immediately calls the people to pray and to fast and to seek the Lord, which they do. And he leads the people in prayer and he says, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And the Bible says that the entire nation of Judah was gathered together, men, women, children, all standing there before the Lord. And in that context of worship and prayer and fasting, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon one of the men in the gathering there, and he stands up among them and he says to them, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. There's this supernatural balance between trust in God and obedience to God. And those two always go together. You trust and obey. For there's no other way. There's a whole song written about it, right? So we trust and obey. Those two always go together because when you obey God, you're trusting that God's way is the best way. That God's way is the right way. And so Jehoshaphat obeyed. And as he obeyed, he was trusting that God's way was the best way. And when he did obey, he saw the Lord's strength in his situation. He saw God bring about a supernatural victory that he himself never could have brought about on his own. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in an evil day where the battle is supernatural and the enemy is strong. But the great hope for every battle that we fight is that this battle belongs to the Lord. The battle is not yours. The battle is God's. And so I exhort us today with great confidence in our God. Trust and obey. I exhort us with great confidence in our God today. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might.